You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Hello. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. My name is Brad. If we have not had a chance to meet yet, I'm the lead pastor here at New Life, and we are really glad that you are here this morning. We're actually in the last week of our series, Witness, where we are looking at our five kind of culture markers of who we are as a church. And today we're looking at this idea of what does it mean to be a church with zero gods before God? What does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to be people who are living freed from the trappings of idolatry and having idols in our lives or gods before God alone. And so one thing you maybe already know about me and my wife, maybe you don't, we are major dog people. We love our dogs. Any other dog people in the room here? Yeah, we got a, we got a few. So we have two dogs, two golden retrievers. We call them our fourth and fifth kids. Uh, on the left there is Arlo. On the right is Ryder. And they get BarkBox every month, if that tells you anything you need to know about who we are as, as dog people. Uh, but one of, the, one of the observations, they're both pretty young dogs. One of the recent observations I've noticed comes around mealtime. So around mealtime, what we'll do is we'll get two bowls of food, same exact type of food, same exact amount of food, all of that, and we'll, we'll set the two bowls about 12 feet apart in our house for them to both eat. And so Ryder, the one on the right up there, he will go and he'll find his bowl of food and he'll start eating. And Arlo, Arlo sees Ryder at this bowl of food and he runs over and he'll body check Ryder out of the way to begin eating at this bowl of food that he wants. So Ryder's like, okay, I'm, I'm the younger dog. I guess I know who's, who's the boss here. So Ryder will then proceed to go to the other bowl of food and start eating out of that. And Arlo, contently eating, looks up over at the other bowl, sees Ryder eating, and will run over to that bowl, body check him, so he can start eating out of that bowl of food. And this, this thing goes back and forth, back and forth, until we intervene. Arlo, he, he, his option is to have this bowl or that bowl, but the problem is Arlo wants this bowl and that bowl. He wants both at the same time, which means poor little Ryder doesn't get to eat. Has anybody else ever experienced wanting two things at the same time that live in tension with each other that you can't quite have? There's memes like, I like tacos, but I also want a bikini body, and so like, you have to, I don't want a bikini, I didn't say that. But these two things live in tension with each other, don't they? Or, or if you're married, maybe you live in the tension in your marriage of like, I, I like being married, but I also really like autonomy and some level of freedom. So sometimes these, these two values in our lives live in tension. And, and I would suggest to you, even as we, as we get started this morning, that, that I think we do that a lot with God. That for, for some of us, we want God and we want blank. And we may have a hundred different blanks that we would fill in there. We might have a hundred different things in a room or, or watching online that, that we might have. We want God and we want blank. We want both at the same time. What, what, is, what is in your blank up there? Like, let's just start there. What is, what is in the blank for you? 
Maybe it's God and reputation. Maybe for you, it's, it's God and control. You want to control your life. You want to control the people around you. Maybe for you, it's, it's God and a need to be right all the time. Or God and a material item. What is, what is in the blank for you? God and blank. You see, the, the temptation to mix the way of Jesus and the ways of this world is not a new temptation. It is an ancient temptation that goes back to the very first human beings who ever lived, Adam and Eve. See, the very deception that plunged us as humans into a sin nature, into these trappings of sin, is, is Satan saying, you can have God, and at the same time, you can be your own God. That's the very nature of sin. That's the very nature of idolatry. And then you look at Israel's history and human history. I mean, just think about this. There's, there's this time where, where Moses, this leader of Israel, is up on Mount Sinai, and he comes down only to find Israel worshiping a golden calf. And the kicker of that scenario is they were throwing a festival to Yahweh because they believed they could have God and be their own God. They could have both at the same time. The problem is the God of this Bible, like if we really take this thing seriously, he doesn't leave a lot of room for and. He doesn't leave a lot of room for God and blank. And this temptation, man, it is, it has not gone away. I might argue it's, it's even increased. You see, we were created to live in orbit around God, not for anything else to live in orbit around us. And the very problem with idolatry, the very problem with God and blank is this right here. The idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. They're like Comcast. <laughs> but then they ask for more and more while giving less and less, while they're really like Comcast, until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. This is the nature of idolatry. It's not so much often God or idolatry far more often sounds like God and blank. And we fill in that blank with a whole bunch of different things. A whole bunch of different things. Think about this. Even, even as you look at just different kind of what I would call heresies of Christianity, just like bad kind of offshoots, you have, you have movements like progressive Christianity that would say you can have God and you can live your own truth at the same time. You can have both. Or on the other extreme side of things, Christian nationalism says both at the same time. You can have God and worship your country. God will have no equal. He will have no close second. And the way of Jesus is, is clear up front. Jesus, Jesus demands everything. Unlike idols, they don't demand much at the beginning. Jesus at the front says, no, I want, I want everything and nothing less. And his question to you and to me is, am I worth that? Am I worth giving up everything for? Am I worth leaving some things behind? Am I worth saying no to some things to say yes to the best thing? We've been in, in the book of Acts for this whole series, and Today, as we close the series, we're going to be once again in Acts 16. And this is the third story of Acts 16 that we're going to be looking at. If you haven't noticed, we're actually kind of working our way backwards in Acts 16. Uh, so today, we're going to be looking at the story of Lydia. 
And uh, just to refresh your memory, right? So we, we told the story of this jailer in Acts 16. We told the story of the slave girl last week who was converted. And today, we're going to look at the story of Lydia. And uh, Paul, like we've said every week, is on his second missionary journey in this story that we're looking at today. He's in a Roman colony called Philippi. And this is what happens in Acts 16, beginning in verse 13 here. And on the Sabbath day... We went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. I just want to paint the picture of of kind of the scenario that we're living in right now, the scenario that Lydia is in in this this Roman colony called Philippi. So Lydia is from a place called Thyatira. Does that sound familiar to anybody? We talked about that back in January, which was a long time ago in Revelation. There's a church there, or there becomes a church there eventually. Thyatira is a place that is known for its trade guilds. We talked about that quite a bit in January when we did our series, Jesus, People, and Revelation. They're known for their trade guilds, and they're known for cloth dyeing. And so this is what this this town is known for. And and Lydia is described as a dealer of purple cloths, which in Bible speak, that means she was ridiculously rich, like extremely wealthy. She would have been almost like what we would say is a CEO of of a fashion empire in like a an Italy or New York or something like that. I mean, she is loaded. She's living the American dream before it ever even existed. <laughs> she has it together. She is the equivalent of a CEO. She, even the word dealer means kind of businesswoman is, is what that would mean. So she's a businesswoman who has been extremely successful in the area of fashion. And here she is, and the text describes her as a worshiper of God in Philippi. She's looking for something. She's seeking something. She's hungry for something. She is searching the scriptures. She is praying. She is worshiping. What this means by describing her as a worshiper of God is she is a Gentile who has left kind of the pagan beliefs, the pagan thought systems of her world, the polytheism, all of the different gods around her, and she is seeking the God of the Bible. She's seeking it in Judaism. She's seeking God. So here you have this woman who is kind of in many ways living in the same tension that we are, of this like God and like which way will I go? Like where, where will I give my life to? Where will I give my ultimate allegiance to? And she's in this place where she is seeking. She's desiring to leave behind a world that says you can have God and, but she doesn't quite know exactly where to go from there. You see, Paul's method whenever he would come to a new town would be to find the Jewish worshipers in that town. He would go looking for a synagogue, a Jewish place of worship. And the reason that he would go looking for a synagogue is because if you think about it, the God of the Old Testament scriptures, the God of the Hebrew scriptures is the same God that Paul worshiped. And so he is looking for people who have this kind of common starting point. Maybe people who would potentially be friendly to his message or receive it better. This is what he would often do when he would go into a new town is he'd look for the synagogue and start talking to the Jewish people. But in this town, in this town, it actually says he had to go outside the gate to find worshipers of God in a van down by the river. Channeling my inner Chris Farley here. If you're like under 20, you didn't like understand that joke. But uh, (laughs) so he goes and he finds these women worshiping down by the riverside. 
not going to be able to leave my mind now, in a van down by the river. And uh, Jewish law, actually, the, the Jewish tradition required that in order for a synagogue to be formed in a city, that there needed to be 10 permanent resident men to go found that synagogue. And so what that tells you about the fact that these women are worshiping outside the city by the river is there's not a big Jewish presence in the city. Very few God worshipers, very few people seeking God like Lydia is. So why do I, why do I take the time to explain all of this to you? Because Lydia, Lydia has found some kind of emptiness in the world that she's leaving behind. She's experienced something, and we don't exactly know what it is, but she's experienced something that says, hey, this way of thinking is ultimately going to leave me dry. She is seeking God. She is hungry. She's starving for the real thing. Seeking. There are a lot of seekers of God in our world today. A lot of people who are hungry, who are starving, maybe you would describe yourself that way, that you're, you're hungry, but you don't quite know how to have that hunger satisfied. You're starving, you're, you're incomplete, you're, you're broken, and, and you've come to this place where you don't quite know on your own how to go all in. And I'm here to tell you that, it, that if you're a Christ follower, if you're part of the church, for us to live in a God-and way, a way that puts other things on the same pedestal as God, it offers nothing to the Lydias of the world who are seeking the real thing, but haven't quite found it yet. It offers nothing to the Lydias of the world. It's like filling up a water bottle with salt water, slapping a Jesus logo on it, and handing it to somebody and saying, here, here's a drink, you're thirsty. It offers nothing. Counterfeit gods offer nothing of the real thing to Lydia's who are searching and hungry for the real thing. I was reading an article earlier this week by, by an author out of Portland, and he was kind of describing at least his perceptions from the outside of, of the church today, which is always a dangerous thing to read about. So he is, he's actually an agnostic, which means for him the existence of God is irrelevant. And, and he made some observations in what he calls kind of the twist of Christianity trend that he sees among a lot of Christians these days. And I want you to listen to what he says. Keep in mind in the back of your mind that he's not a Christian. This is his observations of the church today. This is what he says. There's an irony in how whenever Christians seem to attach themselves to mainstream culture with all of its vices in the hope of drawing people towards God, Christians seem to get drawn more towards the vice than the opposite. It seems to represent what I call the twist of Christianity trend. There is mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modish political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture instead of Christianity because at least then they can have all those things and premarital sex at the same time. That was a joke. Not funny? Okay, we missed it. <laughs> I'm not religious, this is what he says. I'm not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me so uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially captivating about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it appears that they actually want to become more like the culture. 
This is the God and mentality. And, and when, we, when we embrace this, when we adopt this way of thinking in our world and moving through our world, when, when our lives look just like everyone else's lives around us, when the language and the way we speak about people and the way we interact with people looks just like everybody else around us, people who are in Lydia's position stay thirsty and hungry and are never led to a place where they can experience living water. And so, as you continue reading the story here in Acts 16 and reading on in verse 14, I want you to, to watch what happens in this interaction between Paul and Lydia. In verse 14b, it says this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Other translations or other ways of saying this is that he opened her heart to respond to what was said by Paul. There was a response inside of Lydia. What did Paul say to Lydia? We don't exactly know what Paul said to Lydia. The text doesn't tell us what Paul said to Lydia, but we do know the world Lydia was living in, and we do know the world of paganism and multiple gods that Lydia was leaving behind. We know this because in Greco-Roman thought, there were a lot of different gods and a lot of different thought processes that aren't all that different than the way that we think in our world today. Let me give you one example that we can see in Acts 17. There were two groups of people, two groups of thinkers in Greek philosophy that were kind of constantly at odds and discussing things. And maybe you've taken a philosophy class and you've, uh, you've learned this before, but the two groups of people in this world were, were called Stoics and they were called Epicureans. In fact, if you read Acts 17, it specifically mentions both of those groups by name, Stoics and Epicureans. On one hand, Stoics believed in self-preservation at all costs. Their entire worldview was built on this idea of preserving myself, respecting myself, not being taken or had or taken advantage of by anybody. And so what they would do, their kind of approach to the entire world was to detach themselves to any real meaning and value of anything in the world. I mean, it would go as crazy as you're tucking your son in at night. Don't get too close or too attached because one day you will die. And so Stoics detach themselves from everything around them. People will let you down. Things will let you down. So you may as well just keep your distance. This was the attitude of the Stoics in this world. The Epicureans were just the opposite. Like their, their lifestyle, their phrase could be described as YOLO. You only live once. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so for Epicureans, they would indulge themselves in anything and everything that they could imagine because you only live once. Life is short. You may as well do it now. And so for the Epicureans, their whole worldview was built around this idea of self-fulfillment. I want to remind you that both of these worldviews revolve around this idea of self of me at the center. And yet the God of this book, he created us to live in orbit around him, not the other way around. And I look at those two groups of people, and I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful we've progressed beyond that. I'm so thankful we don't live in a culture obsessed with self. <laughs> Lydia, she has every reason for self-respect. She has every reason for self-fulfillment, but she has found these things still leaving her empty. She's walking away from them. 
because she is seeking something different. Now, we may not know how Paul speaks to Lydia specifically, but we do know how Paul speaks to these worldviews of polytheism and God and, and you can have it all. This is what he says in Acts 17. You want to put those words up there. He says, the God, and this is him speaking to these groups of people, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Reading on here, for in him we live and move and have our being. The times of ignorance God once overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is he talking about there? Jesus. What he's saying is if somebody comes and lives a perfect life and dies a criminal's death and then resurrects from the dead, we should probably listen to and pay attention to what that guy has to say. That's no small thing. And so why was this Jesus movement so much of a threat to the Roman Empire? Because people all around in this pagan culture were constantly butting up against this idea that Stoics, Epicureans, other thought processes, other worldviews would leave them empty. Yeah, they were nice philosophies to discuss in ivory towers, but they didn't offer anything to real people about what it means to have a fulfilled life, to love well, to sacrifice for the sake of others. It offered nothing. Live for me ultimately offers nothing. God and is a worldview that is ultimately bankrupt in a culture that is drowning with an obsession with self, that is depressed beyond all measure, that is obsessed with materialism and power. God and offers nothing to a culture like that. You see, there are two marks of every idol. Two markers, and Christian theologians have identified these for a long time. There are two marks of of every idol, every kind of God and mentality. The first one is this. It's a half-truth that's made the whole truth. It is a half-truth that has made the whole truth. What do I mean when I say that? I think the biggest area where we do this is in the area of identity. Maybe I made a mistake, and yeah, that's true, but then I take that mistake on as identity, and that becomes my whole truth. We do this in the area that desires for good things in this room. Maybe for you, you've, you've navigated infertility for, for many, many years. We have friends close to us who have walked that journey, many friends who have. And as you've been on that journey, a good thing has become the ultimate thing in your life. Maybe, maybe for you, it's financial security that until you reach this place where you feel abundantly secure in the area of finances, which is a good thing, that's not a bad thing, but until then, I won't be generous with what God has given me. I won't take risks for the sake of the kingdom of God. I'm going to hold it in and hoard it and hold it close. A good thing becomes an ultimate thing. You can name any area of life, our relationships, our material possessions, any of these things which are good things can become an ultimate thing for us. And so we, we end up in this place where we're trapped in this God and 
mentality. But do you know what happens when God's people name their idols, confess their idols, and surrender them at the cross? Those idols lose all power. Those idols, those strongholds in our lives, those things that once had so much power, when those are named, when those are confessed, and when those are laid at the foot of the cross, the devil loses his foothold. He loses it. Chains are broken when you name and surrender idols in your life for what they are at the cross. And Lydia is in this place where she has a decision to make. Am I going to seek the things of this world? Am I going to continue going after those things? She could have found her identity in a whole number of things. She could have found it in her success as a purple cloth dealer, dyer person. (laughs) She could have found it in her national identity. She could have found it in any number of things. She could have found it, and yet here she is. She's seeking God, but she hasn't quite found him fully. She's not found him fully solely in her family. She's not found him in her job. She's not found him solely in her money or her stuff or accumulation. And I love how the text says the Lord opened her heart to respond fully to what Paul was saying. And this is what happens in verse 15. And after she was baptized and her household as well. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here's the crazy part. Lydia is the very first European convert to the gospel message. She is the founding member of this church in Philippi. Ten women may not have been able to plant a synagogue, oh, but boy, they can plant a Christian church. And they do. And what we believe happens is that Lydia actually is the one that plants the church. She goes back home and plants the church in Thyatira, and and the gospel is spread there. So the question that I want to ask us today is, when we think about this whole idea of God and what is competing with God for your whole heart? What is it? What's competing with God for your whole heart? I want to end uh, our time together today just by being brutally honest. (laughs) I'm going to end this a little bit differently. I didn't want to preach today, to be completely honest. And I hope that's okay to say in a church like this. We had a really hard week in our family. And for those of you that don't know our story, um, we have had a foster son for the last three years. And we've had him since birth. And there's a trial going on in Grand Rapids, and I I can't get into too many details, but just suffice it to say, things feel really uncertain right now for us, for our family. And that's where my mind and my heart has been for the last week. It's just this this kind of uncertainty. What do I do? Where do I go? He's our son. I I don't want to lose my son. And I've had a lot of sleepless nights this week, just tossing and turning in the middle of the night, wondering what's, what's going to happen, where is this going to go? Just wrestling with God over this. So I didn't want to preach this Sunday, because my heart was elsewhere this week, and that's pretty rare. It was a hard week. And so it was, uh, 
It was Friday night, Saturday morning. We were doing a family camp out in our living room, and we do these often, where we get all of the blankets out, we bring all the cushions in, and we just camp out as a family. And I couldn't sleep. I was just looking at my beautiful kids and just wrestling and tossing and turning. So I ended up just just putting some headphones in and listening to some worship music. And I'm not kidding. The second song that came on, I just want to read some of the lyrics to you. And as I do this, Trent's going to make his, his way back up. But I just want to read you some of these lyrics that just started pumping through my headphones in the middle of the night as I couldn't sleep around 3 a.m. on Saturday morning. This is what these words said. In the morning, God, you sing over me, and I receive your, faithful, your mercy. Your faithfulness is clear to see it's constant every day. Every breath I breathe, an invitation to believe you are creating something good. In the silence, I choose to believe you're working in the waiting, though the future isn't clear to me. I trust you anyway. Every breath I breathe, an invitation to believe you are creating something good. And then I'm not joking, the bridge of the song over and over and over again says, God's not worried, why do I worry? God's not worried, why do I worry? God's not worried, why do I worry? Now, some of you are cynical and you think, ah, Spotify's algorithm. They knew you were up in the middle of the night, so they played songs about anxiety. In the name of Jesus, shut your mouth. (laughs) I'm choosing to believe that God actually was doing something in that moment. And here's what I believe he was doing, and this is why I think this applies to what we're talking about today. What he spoke to me in that moment as I was thinking about this idea of zero gods before God is what he spoke to me as he said, Brad, you have made your son an idol during the season. It's not an idol in the sense of you loving him or wanting the best for him or even your willingness to to lay down your life for him. I think any parent in the room would be willing to lay down their life for a kid. But your son has become an idol when you choose to, to focus your attention and your affection and your desires on the insecurity of the situation that you are in. When you choose to try to love him out of your own worry, your own stability, you're going to fall short in loving your son every single time. But when you remove your idols from a good thing that has become an ultimate thing and you focus and fix your attention on me, the author and giver of life, the one who sustains, the one who is worthy of all of your affection and all of your attention and all of your desire. When you do that, when you live with zero gods before God, you actually have the power to love your son better than you could ever attempt to love him out of your own desire to worry and try to control and manipulate a situation that you just don't have all that much control over. And so God's invitation to me in that moment was for however long you have him to keep your eyes fixed on the author, the sustainer, the perfecter. And as I I ask that question, Sarah, if you can put that up again, what is, go back, what is competing with God for your whole heart? Maybe, Maybe it is a situation 
of endless worry and control for you. Maybe you love your kids or you love your spouse and you're just, there's so much uncertainty in this world right now. And my question for you is, is your desire to control a situation competing with God for your heart? You will never love your kids or your spouse or whoever you're in a relationship with well if something is competing for your heart other than God. Maybe for you, what's competing with God for your heart is just your opinions and the need to be right all the time in every situation. To you, I would say, congrats, you're probably right. You're, you're probably right. Now what? You had the last word, congrats, but now what? That could become an idol in our lives, something that, that overpromises and underdelivers. Maybe for you, your, your idol, the thing that's competing with your heart for God is, is your marriage, that you have finding your identity in your marriage. Maybe you're single right now. And that thing to get married or to be in a relationship has become an absolute idol of identity in your life. And it's controlling everything that you are doing and the way you're living. What is competing with God for your whole heart? God's invitation to his people has always been the same. His promise to his people has always been the same. It's the same promise to Lydia. It's the same promise to me. It's the same promise to you. It's the same promise to every person who has ever sought God. And it's this found in Jeremiah 29, 13. It's one of my favorite verses in scripture. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Jesus doesn't overpromise and underdeliver. Jesus promises and he delivers every single time. He's worth putting your trust in. He's worth building your life on. He's worth bringing your worry to. He's worth bringing every single thing to that is in competition with him for your heart. He is worthy. The question for us is, are we willing to do just that? And once again, as, as we close today, I just want to ask you the question, who is or what is competing with God for your whole heart? And what do you need to do to lay that down at the cross, to surrender that at the feet of Jesus and say, here, Jesus, you can handle this situation far better than I ever could. Your desire is to walk with me in this. Your desire is to hold me and to carry me and to sustain me in this. And you are worthy to do that. Because this world was not built to revolve around me. I exist to bring you glory and you praise forever and ever. If I could, let me, let me close us in prayer. And then we're going to respond in worship this morning. God, I, um, sometimes I feel like I get up here and don't have a lot to offer. And God, there are times where things feel insecure 
and unstable. And the temptation is easy to look elsewhere. God, I know there's a lot of people in this room who have had hard weeks in different ways, big ways and small ways. Some have had really awesome weeks and great weeks. And God, you're in all of that. So God, my my prayer for us this morning is whatever season that we're in, whether it's a good season or a bad season, a hard season or a, a season of plenty and ease, God, I pray that we will learn with everything we are to seek you and to seek you with all of our heart, that the affections that compete for our heart will fall away, God, and that we will have our eyes and our attention and our hearts focused entirely on you. And out of that place, we learn to love people well. Out of that place, we learn to serve people well. Out of that place, we learn to be who you want us to be. So God, we love you. Oh man, we love you so much. In the name of Jesus Christ that we pray and everybody say, amen.